I don't know if this has ever happened to you, but I know it's happened to me. Sometimes when you're in a conversation with someone, and you know they're smarter than you, we, we can admit that. Sometimes we are not the smartest person in the room. And you're listening to them talk, and it's really impressive. You know, Maybe it's a lecture that you've watched online, a podcast, something like that, or it's actually a person you know, and you're in the room with them. And as you listen to them talk, they start using words that maybe you're not so familiar with. And as they're using them, you think, yeah, I understand what that word means. And then you don't realize it, but eventually those words, as you keep hearing them, become part of your vocabulary. So you start using them. And you start using them in conversation with other people, and then sometimes those other people, again, maybe are a little bit smarter than us or know more than we know about a certain subject. And they say, you know, that word, you keep using that word, I don't think you understand what that word means. I don't know if that's ever happened to you, but I know that there have been times where I've heard a word, maybe it's because I was at school and the professor uses it, and I think I know what this word means, but I don't really know what this word means. And even though I didn't really know what the word means, I still used it in a sentence. And sometimes that leaves people confused because they don't really know what that word means either. Words can be confusing. And I think especially in church. Sometimes in church, we use words that maybe you've never heard before. They're not words that you'd use in a conversation with somebody as you're buying groceries or getting gas. They're words that are specific to church. And because they're specific to church and you haven't heard them in other contexts, sometimes people like me, pastors, preachers, those types of people, don't always explain what they mean. And so sometimes you are left actually a little bit unsure as to what the word actually means. With that in mind, we've decided to do this series called Big Church Words. Sometimes we have these words, like I said, in church that are big. There are technical words. There are words that we don't hear anywhere other than in the Bible or people who talk about the Bible. And so we become confused as to what they mean. And we don't know how significant or important they are in our daily life. And because we've been hearing these words, and maybe it's been so long you're afraid to ask what they mean, I wanted to explore some of those words with you, as well as some great guest speakers this month, who are going to explore these words to try and help you and me, as I listen to other people as well, understand how significant these words are and how they can make a difference in our faith journey and our daily life more than we realize. And this morning... To start it off, I actually want to do two words. I'm doing two words because they're actually kind of, one of them's, one of them's a tiny word. It's not a big word, though it has big implications. But this word is so small, it's only three letters, I thought, why not? I can do two words. So today we're going to talk about two words. We're going to talk about sin, which I know already, as soon as I say that word, you have ideas as to what that word means. And we're going to talk about confess or confession. Again, a word that you've probably heard many times, but maybe there's more to it than you realize. And that in our familiarity with these words, we're actually missing out on how significant they are and how they can and do make a difference in our journey in life with Jesus and with each other. Before we get into these two big, small words, sin and confess, let's take a moment to pray. 
Heavenly Father, we thank you that we get to be online together this morning or whenever we're watching this. Whether we're watching on a phone, on a TV, on a computer, I pray that our hearts and our minds are open to your guidance, Holy Spirit, as we explore what these words are, why they matter, and the difference they can make. I pray that maybe we can let go of some of the things that we hold on to, that we've learned for a long time, that maybe are not as correct as we thought. I pray that we can embrace those things that you want us to embrace this morning. And ultimately, through it all, I pray, Jesus, that we know you more and more and follow you more and more as Lord and Savior. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's start with those big words. Let's start with sin. As I said, sin is it's technically a small word. There's three letters, but there's big implications for it in the Bible and in your life. In fact, that word sin, some of you might know this, is more than just one word. One of the challenges that we have with English Bibles or Spanish Bibles or Portuguese Bibles or French Bibles, any Bible that's not in its original language, is that sometimes the words that were used long ago, whether it's in Hebrew in the Old Testament or Greek in the New Testament, don't necessarily match up the way we would like them to in our language. And so with the word sin, sometimes it becomes a blanket word for more than 33 different words. Now when I say there's 33 different words possibly for sin, it doesn't mean they're, they're so unique that they're not connected in some way. One of the amazing things about ancient languages is usually those words have a root word. And that root word adds a few little letters, a few different things to change it a little bit in the context, but it's really the same word. And so while I say there's 33 potentially words for sin, there's actually more like six. Three in the Old Testament, three in the New Testament. And in our Bibles, sometimes those words get translated as sin. Sometimes it's things like evil or iniquity or trespass or transgression. But when we talk about sin, we need to decide what are we talking about and what we're biblical authors inspired to write about. Most of us, when we hear that word sin, we think of something bad we do. We think it's something wrong that we've done. It's a sin. You can't do that. Some of you grew up in a time when going to the movies was a sin, or dancing was a sin, or shopping on Sunday was a sin. It's something you should not do if you were a follower of God. And while Over time, we've kind of realized maybe those things aren't as big of a deal as we made them up to be. There are clear instructions in Scripture around certain things that are things you are not supposed to do. Those types of sin. But the word sin is more than just something you're not supposed to do. Culturally, we've started to use the word sin to be, again, really bad, but also sometimes really good. Like, oh, this chocolate cake is sinful. Like, it's so good, it's so decadent, you love it. You know you shouldn't have it, but it's so good. So when we have these ideas culturally, whether it's from our past, even within the church, whether it's from our present in the world we live in, we develop a definition for a word that sometimes isn't as rooted in what its intent was in the first place. So what does the Bible say sin is? I would love to say it's really simple, but it's not. In fact, when you read Scripture, sin gets described in different ways. 
Sometimes, like I said, it is something you do. Sometimes that's translated as transgress, transgression, trespass. Sometimes it's just sin. Most of us are familiar enough with the story of Scripture that we have an idea of where some of these words come from, like sin. For most of us, we've been exposed to church for a while or culturally understand that sin wasn't the best thing to ever happen. Sin was a bad thing. And so most of us would go back to our Old Testament and explore, well, where does this come from? In fact, sin enters the picture in the story of Adam and Eve. Some of us might be familiar with the story of the Garden of Eden, that God has created this perfect place to be in harmony with him, harmony with creation, harmony with each other. And that people made a decision to disobey God and, in effect, sinned and changed everything. Paul explores that sin entered the world through one person, one man, Adam, in Romans 5.12. But actually, our Bible doesn't use the word sin, and no Bible uses the word sin when that happens. That's not actually there. The first time the word sin comes up is the chapter later, when it's talking about Adam and Eve's kids, Cain and Abel. In Genesis 4, verse 7, God, speaking to Cain, says that sin is crouching at the door. This image that God gives is that sin is waiting, anticipating to overtake Cain. If you're familiar with the story, you know that Cain kills his brother Abel out of jealousy. And God condemns him. He's kicked out again. He's moved away from the people he knows and loves, his family, and is separate. And everything keeps getting worse and worse because sin was waiting to overtake him, and then it did. God, in that moment, the language that gets used uh, is not the word for doing something bad. In fact, the word that gets used for sin is kata. And the words that would be used for doing something bad or pasha or aviari. And those are transgressions, like you've committed a sin. But the word kata, which is the most common Hebrew word that gets used, and when it's translated to Greek, is hamartia, means to miss the mark or to go astray. To miss the mark or to go astray. To not be going on the path you were meant to be going on. When you miss the mark, so this is a visual word. When you miss the mark, it's thinking of like you're shooting an arrow. And you can tell I don't do archery. So, But you're shooting an arrow or you're shooting a gun and you're trying to get that bullseye. Or maybe it's even just darts, a little less violent. And you don't. And so you might get close, but you're not there. And whenever you're not there, you're not there. You've missed the mark. So if you're in a competition and everybody else hits the mark, they win the prize. You don't. When you miss the mark, you don't win. You're not victorious. You're not rejoicing. You're going astray. This is the language of sin that's most commonly used is to miss the mark. It's also language that often gets personified, meaning it takes on the picture of more than just something you do, but it's like a force or a person that exists in creation. 
Paul will talk about how we become slaves to the master of sin. And that this slave master is in some ways in control when we submit to sin. So when we allow ourselves to become slaves to sin, it's not always just about we've done something wrong. It's that we have allowed ourselves to follow a path that's completely different than the desired path God has for us. It's just missing the mark. So what is it that we're missing the mark on? Now, it sounds like such a general thing that we could be saying. So it's, you know, what does it mean when I miss the mark? Does it mean, you know, I just, I ate too much cake? Does it mean that I, you know, I said I wasn't going to drink anymore and I drank? What does it mean? So we often associate it with something we've done again, like our trespass, which is, again, another word for sin. But it's more than that. There's something fundamental to it in Scripture. When we miss the mark, we miss the mark on being fully human. When God creates Adam and Eve in the context of early creation, everything is in harmony. People are in harmony with each other. People are in harmony with God. People are in harmony with creation. And as they're in harmony, they are, as we would say, living their best life. Everything's good. Everything's perfect. Everything is awesome. But then we choose to miss the mark. And as we miss the mark, everything is not awesome. That harmony we had with creation, no more. That harmony we had with each other, no more. That harmony we had with God, no more. We have broken all our relationships because we decide to go our own path and not God's path. This is the story of all of us. As Paul says that sin enters through one person, through one man, Adam, we've all sinned. In Romans chapter 3, Paul says this, But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. So the right way, the righteousness, again, these are big words, so sometimes we get confused. Righteousness means right living, so following the right path, not missing the mark, not going astray, following the right path. This righteousness has been made known outside of the context of don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. And he says, in fact, those laws that say don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, testify that this righteousness is true. So do the prophets, the people who have spoken for God long ago. And this righteousness, this right way, is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. So this right way of living is through faith, meaning there is a trust and belief in Jesus, and you follow his path. He says there's no difference between a Jew and a Gentile, so it's for everybody. Because all have sinned, all have hamartia, and fall short of the glory of God. None of us, none of us is on the right path, is not missing the mark on our own. We've all fallen short. It's rooted in the story of Adam and Eve that initially all people are kind of stuck in this curse. It's part of the problem. And on our own, we still are missing the mark. We've all sinned. But 
all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. All are justified freely, meaning there's nothing you've done to earn this, but it is made right, justice has incurred, so there's been a penalty that's been paid through grace, through an undeserved gift. The redemption through Christ, meaning made new, redeemed, brought back, made the way you were supposed to be. So all have missed the mark, but all have the opportunity to get back on track through faith in Christ. Sin has affected everybody. There's no one who it hasn't affected. You could be the best person ever. It's still affected you. You could be incredibly generous. It's still affected you. You could be incredibly kind. It's still affected you. It has affected all of us. Every single one of us. There's, there's no difference in any of us, no matter where we've come from, what our background is in this thing, is that you have missed the mark. You were created in the image of God, meant to be in harmony, in righteous harmony with God, each other, and creation, and you're not. All have missed the mark, all have sinned, and fall short of what God intended. But the good news is Jesus has made his way for us to get back to where we've intended. Think about it when you drive. Maybe you were one of the lucky ones and you got to go on a little bit of a family drive and you're driving, you're going to visit family over the Christmas break. When you drive, unless you drive a more expensive car with lots of great features or a Tesla, when you drive, if you take your hands off the wheel, you're not going to stay on the road for long. Again, now lots of new cars have lots of features and they'll help you stay on that road. But if you don't have those features, if you just have a car like I do, and you just take your hands off the steering wheel, eventually your car will veer to one side or the other or the road will change so you go straight and it doesn't. You will miss the mark, the intended path for you, if nothing is driving the car. There needs to be steering. There needs to be direction to that path. And in the same way, in our lives, as we veer off, as we go places we think are right but aren't always, we need Jesus' guidance, his guardrails, his steering to bring us back. And we can only get that through Christ Jesus. So we need to embrace this sacrifice he has done, the act of dying for us, for the forgiveness of sin in the general sense and in the specific sense of you and me and what we're dealing with, and for life in all of its fullness. And then we can get back on track and stop missing the mark. Sin is a small word, but it's got big implications. And if we are not going to be honest about the reality that sin is a problem, we're never going to get back on track. We will always just think you're fine the way you are. You know, nobody can tell me what's wrong with me. And the truth is, God loves you the way you are, but he doesn't want you to stay there. 
because you haven't always been hitting that mark. He's got something better for you. Which brings us to our second word, confess. Now that word confess, we again have this idea maybe of what it means. So we might have a picture of maybe we went to a type of church, whether it's an Anglican or Catholic or even Lutheran, where you would go to someone and you would offer a confession. Maybe you went to like a confession booth where they close the the drape or the door and you tell them all the things wrong you did this week. And they say, okay, God forgives you. Go in peace. Say some prayers. So we got this idea of confess or confession that maybe looks something like that. But maybe there's more to it. For sure, it means to admit to, to confess something means that, yeah, I did this, or yeah, this was wrong. But there's more to that word. The word confess in Greek is where we're going to be looking. So in 1 John 1.9, John says this. He says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. So if we confess, so we think, admit our sins, just say, hey, we did these things, he will forgive us, and he'll make things better. He'll get us back on path, stop missing the mark. But there's more to that word than just admit. In fact, the word in Greek is homologeo. And homologeo means it's, it's kind of two words that come together. And one of those words is together. And the other one is speak a conclusion. So it means to speak a conclusion together. It means to agree with each other. So when you confess, it is an admittance, but it is an agreement as well. When we are told to confess our sins, yes, we are admitting we've done something, but we are coming in agreement that what we've done is not God's way. That's a big deal. A lot of us, when we say, hey, I know I shouldn't have done this. You know, uh, you know, a tub of ice cream is more than enough for four people, and I just had it to myself. Or, uh, you know, I was mean to this person. I know I shouldn't have done that. I'll, you know, I'll pray, uh, God forgive me. We do things and think, okay, if we just admit it to God, it's good. And to some extent, it's true, but there's more to it. When we just admit it, sometimes what happens is we go back to it. We go, oh yeah, I did this again. I remember as a kid, you know, we went to Catholic school, so we did uh, First Communion and Confession and all that kind of stuff. And you would just try to find things that you, because you had to go, you had to say what you did wrong. So you try to find things like I was mean to my mom, or, you know, I, I did this, or I got upset, or whatever. And you would repeat the same things over and over again. This is what most people do when it comes to confession. You're repeating the same things over and over again. Why? Because you've habitually gotten stuck in missing the mark on how things are supposed to be. So if to hit the mark is to be in right relationship with God and creation and other human beings, to be fully human, fully alive, experience life in its fullness, as Jesus would say, when we confess that we're not doing that, we need to not just say we're not doing it. We need to agree that there is a better way. When we agree that there is a better way, we need to choose to follow it. When we confess our sins, the language indicates that not just do you admit you've done wrong, but you agree there's a better way and you follow that 
path. If you're just confessing and saying, I did wrong, and you do it over and over again, you're not confessing. The freedom that Jesus offers us, the opportunity for life in its fullness, the path of righteousness, of right living, of being justified, of being made right with God, doesn't happen just saying, I did wrong, forgive me. Yes, you're forgiven, but you're not taking the opportunity to not miss the mark with God. When we come to confess, we agree that his way is better than our way. And we need to start making choices that reflect that. If I say, man, I should not be overeating, and then I just keep filling my plate, I'm not agreeing with what he said. I'm actually continuing to sin willfully. If you read through the book of Romans, Paul says that's not good. When you come to confess, you're in agreement that what you are confessing is not God's way. And so you need to be making choices afterwards to not keep going back there. Paul says in Romans 10 verse 9, he says, If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. When you declare, when you confess, admit, agree to, Jesus is Lord, you are saying, I am not. My way is not the best way. My way is missing the mark. My way is not bringing harmony to the relationships all around me. God's way is better. So when you confess, agree, Jesus is Lord, you say, I am not, and you choose to submit, follow, give into his way. Paul gives this picture in Romans, and uh, just as a quick overview, that either you are a slave to righteousness, which means God's way, the right way of doing things, or you're a slave to sin. We all serve a master. We just have to decide which one. So either you're following God's way or you're not. My prayer for you is that you confess with your mouth. You declare that Jesus is Lord. And he is good to forgive you of sin in the general sense and in the specific sense of what maybe you've done, but also the reality that you have just missed the mark because that's the curse we live under. And that as you make that confession, you take steps every day to be more and more living in the way of righteousness Jesus has for you. How do you do that? You begin by agreeing with what he says. How do you know what he says? You read your Bible. God's given us great insights on what it looks like to follow him every day of our lives. If you're not reading it, You don't know it, and you're still missing the mark. My prayer for you is that this year you take the time, maybe move past some of these big church words, and look at the words that Jesus has given us, that God has given us through inspiration throughout time, to guide us in all righteousness and follow him. That's my prayer for you. So let's pray. God, I thank you that you are our God that as we explore these big words of sin and confess, 
You are a God who has made a way to resolve the problem of sin. And it's when we agree with you, come into committing to you, to declaring that you are who you are, and we follow you, Jesus, as Lord, that we can move past these problems of sin. I pray for everyone who is listening or watching online right now that we are honest with ourselves, that we are honest that you do have a way, and it maybe isn't the way we want it to be. Maybe it's different than what our preference is, but it's actually better. Help us to see how it can be better, God, to follow you than to follow our own desires and instincts. Because you do have a better way for us, a way that gives us life in all its fullness, not just a hope of an afterlife, of heaven, of whatever that might be, but of a right now with you in your way and a path of right living. I pray, Holy Spirit, that we can embrace that every day, that we can confess our sin and agree with you and follow you. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for being with us this morning, and uh, God bless you this week. I pray that you know that the God of all hope is with you, will sustain you, and will fill you with all joy and peace as you follow him. God bless you. Thanks for